meet you on this piece of scripture. My name's Susan Reddy. I go to this church, in case you don't know me. <laughs> um, would you bow your head with me and let's pray. Father God, we need to hear from you this morning. You say in your word, those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We are your church, Lord. Speak to us by your Spirit. Would you take over this morning? It is no good me talking. We need you to talk, Lord. And would you prepare our hearts to hear? And would you draw us back to yourself, Lord? We know that you love us so deeply. We pray this in your name. Amen. So my question for you as I start this morning is to ask, what are some signs that someone is falling out of love? Uh, maybe they become less interested in the other person, uh, don't really want to spend time with them, don't really value their opinion, uh, want to live independently, and actually look, maybe start to look elsewhere for happiness. The truth is when you love someone with your whole heart, you want to spend time with them because you love them and they give you joy. But when you don't, actually spending time is just an obligation, just something to get through as quickly as possible. In Revelation 3, 14 to 22 this week, we actually find a church that is falling out of love with their God. They're pretty comfortable, self-satisfied. They are no longer passionate about their Savior. And so they're kind of just going through the motions. And because God loves them, more than that, is incredibly passionate about them. He comes and warns them. And there's a strong message for us in these verses, a message to tell us that God wants our hearts. He doesn't just want us to go through the motions with him. He has incredible passion for us. And so he doesn't want just Sunday Christians. He wants us all day, every day, to be sold out for him like he is for us. So my prayer this morning as we look at these verses is not that we're going to start to feel kind of guilty because, you know, maybe I'm not as hot, like maybe I'm a bit lukewarm like Laodicea, <laughs> but rather that you would receive the, actually the beautiful invitation to the Lord to come closer, to grow in passion and love for him. And I'm praying that no matter what your spiritual temperature is today, that we're all going to leave much more ignited with passion for our Savior. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please open them to Revelation 3.14. If not, you can follow as I go along here. But before I start, I just want to orient us as to where we are, since some of you, maybe this is the first morning you're joining us in our series on Revelation. This book of Revelation was written uh, by John the Apostle. It was a, actually a, um, a vision given to him by Jesus when he was on the island of Patmos in exile. Now, John... The apostle had walked with Jesus, eaten with him, been up close and personal with Jesus for three whole years. He had seen Jesus be incredible. He'd show his incredible love, his compassion, his miracles, and then he'd watched him die on a cross, a cruel, brutal death. And then he saw him come to life again three days later. And John would not shut up about his God. He knew Jesus was God. There was no other explanation, and so he kept on preaching, and that's why they finally sent him to exile in Patmos to shut him up. But I'm sure he told everybody on the, in the exile while he was on the island anyways. <laughs> and during this time, Christians were facing quite a bit of intense persecution. They were, As Andy told us last week, they were no longer kind of under the umbrella of Judaism. 
Now they were considered to be another religion of their own, and so as such, they weren't protected, and they were being pushed to uh, worship, do the idol worship of the Romans, including worshiping their emperor, and particularly Domitian, who actually said he wanted people to worship him as Lord and God. And so the Christians who believed in Jesus wouldn't do that, and so they were facing increasing troubles. And also increasing pressure to compromise. And so Jesus sends them, gives them this message to strengthen his suffering church. And he gives John this vision of very special messages for seven churches. And there's a map up here to show you these are actual real churches that existed in the first century. This was intended to go from place to place as a circular letter, as Andy reminded us last week. But it's also in scripture because God wants us to learn from it. This is not just a message to his ancient church. This is a message to his today church, a church actually that is suffering probably as much, if not more, than the ancient church. I've heard it said that the church today is the Christians are facing genocide. And there is still today so much pressure for us to compromise. We need this message. So the message then for this week that we're looking at is the one he sent to Laodicea. Now, Laodicea was about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia, as you can see it there on the map. It's near Colossae, about 10 miles away. This is a very rich, self-sufficient city. They were actually located on a major Roman road, which meant they had tons and tons of commerce. They were a major banking center. Money flowed in Laodicea. They were also known for their wool garments. They made beautiful wool garments. They were also known for their medical school that made a very special eye salve. And the inter another interesting thing about Laodicea is they had no water supply of their own. They had to actually pipe it in from either the mountains a few miles south or from the hot mineral springs of Hierapolis eight miles away. So this is an ancient pipe that's been uh, excavated from around Laodicea to show us the kind of buildup that would grow in their pipes. There's lots of um, different kinds of minerals in there. So by the time it got to Laodicea, it was kind of disgusting. It was tepid. Some people who drank it, they just smelt, it tasted awful. Some people vomited when they drank it. So keep those things in mind as we look at what Jesus says to this particular church. Okay, so let's pick up then in verse 14. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. So angel, what is that? Well, uh, probably it's from the word angelos or angelos. It means messenger. So we don't really know what it means, actually. But it could be a pastor, it could be a, a leader, it could be an angel. We don't know. But the point is this message was for their people to hear. And Jesus calls himself these three things. He calls himself the Amen. This means certainty or truth. Amen is a way of acknowledging that something is entirely true. That's why we say it after we pray. Amen. I believe this is true. Jesus is the amen. He's the utterly true foundation for life. He also calls himself the faithful and true witness. Jesus came to earth to show us what our God is like. He came here. He is God. He wrapped himself in humanity. And he fulfilled all the promises. He obeyed God perfectly. And in his life, death, and resurrection, he showed us what our 
God is like. If you want to know what your God is like, read about Jesus. He's also, <clears throat> says, the first, the ruler of God's creation. Some Bibles say firstborn of God's creation. That's actually the King James version of it. I just want to stop here for a minute because actually some religions, particularly Jehovah's Witnesses, have used this to say that Jesus is created. This is not what it means. It means he is the alpha. He is the source of all creation. He is, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. In him, all things were created. Jesus is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the savior. He rules. He's God. And so the reason Jesus tells them all of this to start off with is because he wants them to know he's God because he's now going to tell them. He wants them to know he has authority to judge them. He wants them to know that he actually really does know what's going on in this little church. So he says in verse 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. They're neither cold like that refreshing water from the mountains, nor are they hot like that healing water from Hierapolis. They're just kind of lukewarm like their disgusting, tepid water. I find it so interesting that God and Jesus, God, Jesus, uses words, ways for people to connect with very personally in the way he sends messages to us. That's what he does in his message to Laodicea. Because they're lukewarm, they're half-hearted towards him. They are Christians, they go to church, Christ doesn't really mean that much to them. Rather than being warm, full of zeal for the one who died on the cross for them, they kind of look at him with a sort of mild approval. So maybe they pray occasionally, go to church on Sundays, especially pray when they need something, but they won't get too excited about the Lord of all creation. Certainly not enough to live sacrificially for him in that, in that culture. So they just kind of keep Jesus at a safe distance from them. Kind of don't let him in all parts of their life. And this makes Jesus sick. In fact, actually, he says he's going to vomit. The Greek is, is more um, kind of vulgar, I guess. He's, so he says he's going to spit. The Greek is vomit. The point is that lukewarm faith makes the one who died for us want to vomit. That's what the scripture says. I'm not making it up. <laughs> and so Jesus goes on to say here, the problem is that they're actually blind to their true spiritual condition. Verse 17, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So they think they're fine. They're living the Laodicean dream. They have everything you know, everything they could want. But Jesus says, no, actually, you're confusing your physical well-being with your spiritual well-being. You are actually spiritually bankrupt. And I find Jesus is kind enough to expose the problem before he goes on to fix the problem for them. So what's going on here? Is Jesus saying that it's actually wrong to be rich? Is that what he's saying? 
The riches weren't the problem. The riches were that the problem was that they had allowed their love of money to replace their love of their savior. In that culture, if they were rich, it meant they compromised, most likely, unless they had been born wealthy. To compromise means to lower your standard, to change what you will do in order to get along with someone. That's what we would define compromise as. And the disciples in the first century were under immense pressure to compromise to be able to actually live. In order to work, to buy and sell in the marketplace, to get along with their neighbors, they actually needed to go and worship Caesar. They had to give incense to Caesar in the marketplace uh, or to any some kind of a false god, particularly at the time it was Caesar worship. And so the fact then that they actually were rich meant they had succumbed to the pressure, the pressure to do that. And so they developed this sort of brand of Christianity that kept Christ sort of in the private realm and then they could live however they wanted the rest of the time in public and in business, sort of going along to get along. That's what was going on. That's why Jesus nails their riches, not because of riches itself being a problem. Rich or poor is not, there's not a moral issue. It's how you get the riches and what you do with them. So Jesus finds it disgusting, but rather than um, throw them away, he tells them what to do about it. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. He says, buy from me. Buy from me something that actually they can't buy. Telling them I am the only source of what is actually really and truly important in this world. He says, buy from me gold refined in the fire. Stop running after the gold of this world. Stop doing what it takes to get it. I alone will give you gold that is so much more worthwhile. Salvation, a life with me, everlasting joy in my presence. If you have that, you are truly rich. This gold of this world, it is just so temporary. He says, buy gold from me. He says, I alone have the clothes that can cover your shame. You might be wearing those beautiful wool clothes from your Laodicean wool merchants, but I have the beautiful clothes that you need. I'm the one who can give you forgiveness from your sin and cover you with my righteousness. You don't have to earn it. I'm going to give it to you. Come to me. And I'm going to give you salve so that you can see. Not the salve that you can get from your, from your hospital that you're famous for, but my eye salve. Salve that will open your eyes so you can see with true spiritual vision. So that you can see what is really important. See the world through his eyes. See where you are compromising and where you're, you're not loving me anymore. And so Jesus tells them, really that he wants them to open their eyes to realize the emptiness of loving money, comfort, social acceptance more than the Lord, and that their compromises caused them to stop loving him. And so I, I think for us, our first lesson that we have to get out of this is that compromise leads to coldness of heart. Isn't that just quite so obvious in here? Compromise leads to coldness of heart. It's very easy for us 
in comfortable Canada to be like the Laodiceans, and I know it because I am very much there. <laughs> Living the Canadian dream, get blind to our own compromise. Get blind to where God's gifts become God instead of God. He gives us so much, we get distracted. The thing about compromise is it can seem pretty harmless. I mean, who's going to know? Who's going to know if I do that? Who's going to tell? But compromise is sin. And sin can't be controlled. C.S. Lewis said sin is actually like cancer. It grows silently. It grows slowly. And it eats away at our love for the Lord. And so, no doubt, those early believers thought, oh, well, you know, if I just bow down a little bit to Caesar, as my God, who's going to know? I mean, my family has to eat. But that compromise just ate away at their love. And so, we also face so many temptations to compromise today. To keep Jesus in one part of our lives, have a private faith, and, and then go out and live however we want. You know, have come to church on Sunday and and love him, and then go out on Monday and do whatever we feel like. <laughs> or to love Jesus privately, but to be too ashamed to let be known as Christian in public. So we won't stand up for our Lord, we won't speak of our Lord, we won't defend our Lord. Or how easy it is for us to let his gifts distract us. You know, it's very easy for us to forget and to fall in love with something else other than God. <laughs> and I don't want this to be a beat us all over the head session here. <laughs> I think the reality is God gives us this because he knows it's true. I know it's true in my heart. I just do. And it's a call back to himself. We can forget that our comfort is not Jesus' priority. Our holiness is Justice, mercy, other people knowing him, that's his priority. He wants us to follow his example to sacrificial service, not superficial comfort. So his message is for us, it's for me, it's for you. What area of my life, what area of your life have you thought, who's going to know? Jesus knows. And he says, don't do that. It'll make you not love me anymore. It'll take away your love for me. And the reason he says it is because he loves us too much. Do we see what's next here? Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Jesus is not mad at them. He's not mad at us. He's madly in love with us. He's saying, can you, can you hear him in this, calling people back, come back to me. Repent means turn 180 degrees away from running from me and come back to me. We, we just cannot conceive of how much our God loves us. Um, we sang about it this morning. The truth is his love is higher, wider, longer, deeper than we can ever imagine. His love is infinite. We have just touched our toes in the, in the edge of his love for us, and he wants to invite us to swim in it. And so he's calling them back, not to beat them, not to beat us, because 
He's calling us back because he loves us. So he says, repent, come back to me. But how, how can people who are blind, pitiful, poor, and naked, how can they go and get anything from me? From him, I mean. <laughs> the truth is they can't. And, and they don't have to because Jesus tells us what they need to do, what we need to do next. He says, just let me in. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Jesus says, I'm standing here. I have everything you need. I have everything that will give you satisfaction. Let me in. Open the door to me. That is how you will have joy in my presence and passion for me. You know, this verse has often been used as an invitation to people to receive Christ as their savior. And I just wonder, maybe the reason that the Lord gave this invitation is because some people in Laodicea might have thought they knew Jesus as their savior, but they didn't. That is why Jesus is pictured as knocking on the outside of the door. Our faith has to go from here to here. It has to go into our heart. Our saving faith goes here. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, is my, if my faith is only superficial, is it really saving faith? But mostly this is an invitation to people who know Jesus. From the context, <clears throat> this is for to, to believers who've grown lukewarm. Like I said, Sunday Christians show up occasionally or whatever, but they weren't really that interested in, in Jesus. They wanted to keep him, if you like, on the porch of the house, and they weren't going to let him in the whole way. You know, like, they can look at him occasionally and shut the door. <laughs> so Jesus is knocking at the door as an invitation, actually, to greater surrender and intimacy. In that culture, in Eastern culture, to eat with somebody, even more than in our culture, is a symbol of great intimacy. If you've ever had an e a friend from the Eastern culture, you know that that is true. <laughs> they love to feed you. They love to sit down with you. They love for you to eat with them. This is an invitation to intimacy. So he's knocking at the door of these lukewarm Christians' hearts, and he's saying, let me in. I want to sit, and I want to eat with you. I want you to stop pushing me out of all the parts of your life. Let me in. Turn from your love of other things. Let me in. And so our second lesson that we have to see in these verses is that, very clearly, what Jesus is telling us is, rather than us trying harder to have passion for him, we just have to let him in and be more intimate with him. And so that is, means that we have to see intimacy is what ignites passion. We don't have to go home and pull our socks up and think, I'm, I'm just going to love God more and I'm just, you know. This is an invitation, invitation to intimacy. This is the way. This is the way that we grow in passion. It's like in any human relationship. If you spend time with that person, you will love them more. So he's saying, answer that door. Let me in. 
But I don't know, maybe this morning you've realized actually you've never actually met Jesus. Maybe this is your first time in church. Or maybe, as I've talked, you've realized maybe the reason I'm not that excited about Jesus is because I've never actually invited him into my heart. Will you, this morning, answer that door to him? The reason you're here is because if that is you, if I am speaking that to you right now, the reason you're here is because Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. And he wants to come in. He wants to have a relationship with you. He died on the cross for you. If you had been the only person alive who would have done that, will you let him in? But you have to be the one who lets him in. He's not going to knock the door down. There's a very famous painting, actually, by um, William Holman Hunt. This is it right here. And you notice on the door, there's a no, no doorknob on the outside. That is because Jesus is going to let us open the door to him. He's not going to kick the door down. He is the hound of heaven. He is going to keep pursuing us, but we have to let him in. And so if you don't know Jesus, will you come to him like the Laodiceans? Will you admit to him that you need him? That you are poor and you need his riches. That you are a sinner and you need his clothes to cover you. His forgiveness, his righteousness. Will you tell him you've been blind but now you're seeing and you want him in your life? If you do that this very minute in that seat where you're sitting, he will come into your heart. And you will begin to experience a relationship that there is no other relationship like it. But for those of us, and most of us in this room, we do know him. And so this is an invitation to greater intimacy. He wants greater intimacy. No matter how much intimacy you have with him, he wants more. <laughs> Will you have the courage to invite him further into your heart, into your life? Don't keep him on the porch. Let him in all the way, into all the rooms, whatever that room is like. Whatever room you've been keeping him out of, because you know there's something in there you don't want him to see, will you let him in? The TV room, the computer room, the bedroom, the kitchen. I don't know what your thing is. <laughs> I know mine. Will you let him in? He will come in, and he will help you with it. Don't hide from him. This picture is also his desire for fellowship with us. He wants to sit down at the table and eat with us. He wants to have a good, long conversation with us. He wants us to open his book full of his words that he gave us over many, many years. This book, God's word, is our nourishment. It's what feeds us spiritually it gives us energy and passion because as we read it, we get to know what our God is like. We, we see him. He reveals himself to us and we begin to see him as he truly is and he's bigger, mightier, more beautiful than we could ever have imagined. Through his word, he wants to talk to us, reassure us and comfort us, guide us, correct us, show us his love for us. Show us that Jesus is the golden thread that runs throughout Scripture, that is always invitation. And so he, and he wants us to sit down and talk back to him, not hide our stuff from him in shame, but run to the throne of grace that Jesus opened for us.
Run and tell him. Areas we struggle, everything, your heartaches, your difficulties, your joys, your passions. He, he is a person. He wants to talk to you and he wants you to talk to him. And it isn't doing that in that fellowship. Oh, how desperately we need to realize this. It is in that fellowship that we will have passion. We can't drum it up. We, we need to sit and talk to him. So he's inviting us to do that. Will you invite him further in? So then, oh, I lost my spot in the scripture here. So then we move on to the next verse and we see that with this invitation, he gives a beautiful promise in verse 21. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. So what does this mean? I mean, this is a message to the victorious. Does this mean that, um, you know, if I work really hard, I might make it to heaven and I get to be on the throne with Jesus? No. <laughs> this, is, this is a message for every person who belongs to Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who gives us victory. He is the one who died on the cross. He is the one who took our sin. He is the one who lives in us by his Holy Spirit. He is the one who empowers us and helps us to walk in his ways. He is the one who gives us a desire for Jesus. And so this is a promise to you and to me and to all of those suffering in that church. In the first century, he was saying to his people, what I have for you is going to be so amazing. You are going to be with me forever and ever and ever, and you're going to dwell with me, and you're going to reign with me, and no eye has seen, and no ear has heard, and no mind has conceived what God has for those who love him. So stand firm, church. Stand firm. Stop going after those other gods. Come, be with me. I have such great things for you. So this is a promise for us and for them. Anything we suffer for God in this life, anything. It is going to fade away in comparison to what we have for all of eternity with our Father in heaven. And so then he ends by saying this. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's message to us. Are we listening? So let me end by asking you this. What is your spiritual temperature? Or maybe I should say, how can you tell what your spiritual temperature is? <laughs> well, and I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty, okay? You can tell by how much you want to spend time with your God. And if you're like me and you realize that you're kind of a lot like the Laodiceans, rather than feeling guilty or shameful, Will you and I answer that call to open that door to the heart wider and let Jesus in further? You know, Jesus gave this letter to his churches because they were struggling and they were suffering. And his message, the whole message of Revelation, as we go through it, you'll see it. The message is Jesus is alive. Jesus is coming back. Stand firm, church. And if we could suddenly, this moment, have a vision that John had. If we could suddenly see, right, standing right in front of us, Jesus right here next to me. In his beauty and his glory and his majesty. Do you think we would have a hard time feeling 
lukewarm about him? I don't think so. <laughs> We'd be on our faces. Jesus is alive. And there is a beautiful song I love, and I just want to end with this. Something to think about. We are going to see Jesus face to face. When we see him, we can only imagine what we're going to do. I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence? Or to my knees will I bow? Will I sing hallelujah? Or will I be unable to speak at all? I can only imagine. Church, Jesus is here. He's here if we could only have eyes to see. Will we let him in? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. And Lord, how human words fail to put into words how beautiful, how amazing, how lovely you are. And Lord, would you help us to turn away from the draws of this world that tempt us and entice us away? Would you bind our wandering hearts to you as we sang this morning, Lord? Help us to invite you in further and to fellowship with you every day. We love you, Jesus. Grow passion in our hearts, we pray. Amen. As I invite up the uh, worship team, I'm just going to let you know that at the same time, we're also going to invite up the prayer ministry team. I don't know how God spoke to you this morning. Perhaps for the first time to invite him in or just to invite him in closer, further. Perhaps you just have something else entirely on your heart this morning and you would like some prayer for it. Whatever you want, the prayer up here will be confidential and people will stand with you and bring you to the throne room of this beautiful one. So will you accept the invitation to come up and pray this morning? Thank you.